worthy adversary. Tis but a scratch. A scratch? Your arm's off. No, it isn't. But what's that, then? This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. I have repeatedly emphasized the importance of the idea of progressivism, the belief that progress is possible and is within our power to construct an economic and social system that advances progress. And we will need national strategies to address the defining problems of our time, climate change, inequality, and political stability. To that, we need a social contract that builds social cohesion, and such a social contract must be based on our shared social and political values. So working together for the common good under the new social contract will reinforce our sense of common purpose. That's Joseph Stiglitz, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Joseph Stiglitz on a new social contract. After 40 years, the economic doctrine of neoliberalism has reached a dead end, but not for everyone. The 500 richest people in the world, all of whom are billionaires, gained a combined $1.2 trillion in wealth in 2019. Advocates of neoliberalism preach a kind of economic fundamentalism. That is, markets rule, tax cuts for the rich, deregulation, privatization, and austerity. As Ganesh Sitaraman in The Nation magazine writes, neoliberal policies created gaping inequality, unleashing the economically powerful to reshape politics, markets, and society to serve their interests. Neoliberalism's radical individualism saps society of community and solidarity, leaving people lonely and isolated, ultimately pushing us to retreat into tribal identities. We can now see, Sita Raman concludes, that its results were disastrous. What needs to happen? It's time for a new social contract. Our guest today talking about these issues is Joseph Stiglitz, university professor at Columbia. He's the recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economics. He was chair of the Council on Economic Advisors under Bill Clinton. He also served as senior vice president and chief economist of the World Bank. He's the author of many books, including People, Power, and Profits. He spoke at Town Hall in Seattle in December 2019. And now, Joseph Stiglitz. So first, let me begin with uh, why uh, this 20th anniversary celebration is uh, so important. They deserve to be remembered for, for several reasons. First, it was the first major global protest against globalization and had an uh, uh, impact uh, around the world. It questioned the hypotheses underlying globalization, in particular the uh, uh, belief that globalization would make everybody in every country better off. Uh, it was clear by then that that wasn't true, uh, that uh, many people 
many countries were worse off. And as I'll remark a little bit later, I was at that moment uh, the chief economist of the World Bank. I saw how the rules of uh, the international trading regime were hurting a lot of countries. That trade liberalization was much more effective at destroying jobs than it was in creating jobs. And so, while it was promised that, that it would lead to more growth, in fact, in places like Africa, it's led to a 25 years of uh, economic stagnation. The hypothesis that uh, everybody would be better off was itself a corollary of another hypothesis, which is known as trickle-down economics. The idea was that if that trade would make the economic pie bigger, and in doing so, everybody would benefit. I should emphasize that there is no economic theory behind that idea. <laughs> and, remarkably, uh, no evidence. In the subsequent 20 years since the Seattle protest, um, the evidence has, has mounted uh, very strongly. United States uh, GDP has continued to go up. It's not a good measure of well-being, but uh, GDP has gone up. But the fact is that real wages at the bottom in the United States are at the same level that they were 60 years ago. So if you're one of the people with a limited education having a, a, a uh, a low-wage job, you haven't seen any benefit from all of the growth that has occurred over more than a half century. So it's clear that trickle-down economics hasn't worked. Even in the middle, uh, things haven't gone very well. The median income of a full-time male worker, and the full-time workers are the lucky ones, the median income of a full-time male worker today is the same as it was 42 years ago. So it's very clear that trickle-down economics has not worked. But there was a deeper critique. The way globalization was managed meant that some countries were worse off. Uh, it was also a critique of neoliberalism, market fundamentalism, an idea, I'll come, idea that I'm going to come back to. Another remarkable an important part of the Seattle protest is that it brought together environmentalists, labor activists, health advocates, those concerned with developing countries. It was thus an early example of what has since become more common, a coalition of movements, a coalition of the kind that will be absolutely essential if the progressive agenda is to be achieved. And in coming together, these groups recognized that all of them shared a vision of society, a vision that was markedly different from that of the right. This coalition showed that economic arrangements, trade agreements, are, are about more than just trade. They, they touch on every aspect of our life. They reflect our values, and the resolution of these matters cannot be left to trade ministers and the special interests they represent. There was a deep democratic deficit in the way the trade agreements were arrived at, a deficit that was further exposed by 
the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, uh, TPP. Let me make a, a, a few comments about this uh, democratic deficit, because I think it is actually uh, at, at, at the core of much of the objection uh, to trade agreements. Uh, the first aspect, it was, it, it is, a, a, the trade agreements are a reflection of power. Um, the fact is that the corporate interests uh, have their views expressed in these trade agreements. Uh, and the study of how corporate uh, power has gotten their way um, is, is an important uh, issue for understanding the exercise of power in the United States. Um, it has to obviously to do with the, the power of money in our politics. Um, what I said in one of my earlier books, uh, that the United States has moved from a system of one person, one vote, uh, that was better described uh, by a system of one dollar, one vote. Um, and um, uh, the, uh, the second aspect of, of this democratic deficit is the lack of transparency. Um, that uh, the trade agreements uh, are negotiated in secret. Not even members of Congress uh, were able to find out what the negotiating position of the United States was. And the negotiating position of the U.S. trade representative was actually different and opposed to the position that the President of the United States had taken on a number of issues. And one never knew were these negotiating positions or positions uh, uh, that were really hard and fast, uh, what was going on. And obviously, the lack of transparency should be something that we should be very disturbed about. The third is that over time, tariffs have come down and the major trade issues are no longer the issues of tariffs. The average tariff between the United States and Europe now uh, is under 3% on both, is around 3% on both sides. So tariffs are not really very important. You know, if you eliminated these 3% tariffs, it wouldn't make any difference. The fluctuations in exchange rate that happen every week are greater than these 3%. So trade, the, the tariff barriers are not really the important thing. It's the non-tariff barriers. What do they mean by non-tariff barriers? They're the regulations. And the regulations are the rules by which our society lives. And the question is, who should set those rules? Should they be set by trade negotiators in non-transparent trade negotiations in which corporate interests exercise their power? Or should they be set in a more democratic way through our Congress? A very uh, important issue right now is what are the rules governing uh, the digital economy? And uh, we are just waking up to uh, the dangers of a world without adequate digital rules. And it's not just about monopoly, uh, it's about privacy, uh, it's about uh, uh, political manipulation, uh, even uh, issue liability, uh, pornography. It's a whole set of issues that have opened up that the digital companies understand what is in their interest 
and we're beginning to understand what is in their interest may not be in our interest. And what the digital companies are trying to do is to make sure that our democratic processes will not work by embedding uh, ag the agreements about what the digital uh, 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 constraints on, on what digital regulations will be in our trade agreements. And they've already succeeded in one of the trade agreements that's been passed, and they're trying to get it in some of the others. So uh, that is uh, the third important aspect of the uh, democratic deficit. And the fourth is that uh, we delegated to the president enormous amount of power in uh, trade. Uh, we don't delegate to the president the power to uh, set budgets. That has to go through Congress and it's in the Constitution. Um, the idea was that in battlefields, you need to delegate to the president. But somehow, we slipped from battlefield in military to the use of language, trade war and to say that in a trade conflict, the president has to have this enormous authority. That delegation was done under the assumption that there was a responsible president and that it would be used only occasionally in the context of, 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 of a, uh, an unusual situation. Not to be used, uh, nobody expected it would be used as a tool, um, as an instrument for uh, issues of immigration, issues of uh, you don't like what a country is doing in one area or another area, and you use trade policy to badger them uh, as an instrument uh, uh, giving complete discretion to the president. What is even more disturbing is the opportunity for corruption that it opens up. Because the way we administer uh, these powers is the president says, okay, we're going to have a 10% or 15 or 20 or 25% tariff against imports from a given country. But if you apply, we can uh, give you an exemption. But the exemptions are given not on the basis of any simple set of rules. Uh, it's total discretion. And total discretion is the discretion to give it to your friends or campaign contributors. And we know that there are no boundaries and norms that our president exercises. So that the dangers of corruption in this area are not minuscule. So there is a, a huge democratic deficit that has opened up uh, in the way trade policy has evolved. That's why the protest uh, in Seattle was not just about trade, but was based on a broader critique of the direction in which our society was moving, uh, a critique that I think is even more relevant today, 20 years later. The protest was successful. President Clinton had hoped to start a new uh, round of trade negotiation. 
Perhaps he remembered that one of the earlier rounds of trade negotiations was called the Kennedy Round. And uh, I think he hoped that this would be called the Clinton Round. But uh, of course now that idea sounds, uh, uh, is, is gone into history. And what would people remember are the, uh, is the battle for Seattle. Uh, the Clinton Round didn't happen. But in the global unity that followed uh, 9-11, a new round of negotiations was begun. It was supposed to be about promoting development to rectify the inequities that were, had been evident in the previous round called the Uruguay round that was concluded in 1994. Most of you probably don't remember that round, but there were two things that the developing countries asked for. The, two things that the developed countries asked for. Uh, the round was trying to bring the developing countries within the global trading regime. And the developed countries got the two things they wanted, including intellectual property rights, which I'll come to later. But the developing countries didn't get what they wanted. And uh, they were told, be patient, you'll get it maybe eventually. Um, and uh, by uh, the end of the 1990s, it was clear that uh, 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 that inequity had not been rectified. And so, it, as a condition for starting a new round of trade uh, negotiations, uh, the agreement was that it focused on rectifying these mistakes, and that's why it was called the development round. But um, but then Europe and the United States reneged on the promises they had made. Uh, and uh, as the injustices and deficiencies of the Uruguay round seemed to fade into ancient history. And the, and the round, the development round, was finally abandoned 14 years later, and with it, the attempt at a broad multilateral trade agreement. To repeat, while the protests were about a trade agreement, there, were more, there was much more at stake. Globalization was and is the battlefield in which controversies over values, beliefs about our economic and political system, the nature of democracy have and are being played out. Trade agreements seem to put GDP and corporate profits on a pedestal, prioritizing them even as they gave short shrift to other values like democracy, who should determine the regulations by which we live, their, uh, the environment, even the right to access to medicines, and therefore the right to live. Uh, for developing countries, uh, e the right to develop uh, was put subservient to these uh, trade policies, including the right to have industrial policies. I now want to turn to the issue of, of uh, putting uh, the trade agreements within uh, a broader economic context. The trade and other economic agreements of that era, and still so today, were largely based on a set of now discredited economic doctrines called neoliberalism or market fundamentalism, uh, which basically claimed that unfettered markets would deliver economic prosperity for all. Even as these ideas were being popularized, Developments in economic theory were explaining why they were wrong, as if we need proof beyond what our own eyes showed us. In particular, 
Uh, market failures, instances where markets did not result in efficiency, uh, were uh, um, uh, pervasive. Uh, and many of our critical problems, environmental degradation and pervasive pollution, growing inequality, economic instability, as evidenced by the 2008 crisis, are the result of under-regulated markets. In the past 20 years, we have seen markets deliver us the opioid crisis, the childhood diabetes crisis, a health crisis such that life expectancy in the United States is in decline, setting us apart from other countries, where life ex uh, and a country where the life expectancy of the rich is years longer than that of the poor. My own work showed that in the absence of perfect information, which is always the case, the pursuit of self-interest did not lead to the well-being of all. Uh, I sometimes put it slightly differently. The reason that the Adam Smith's invisible hand, Adam Smith, had, the, the founder of modern economics, had argued that the pursuit of self-interest would lead, as if by an invisible hand, to the well-being uh, of everybody. And uh, one of... Uh, I think my most important analytic results in my research was to show that the reason the invisible hand was invisible was that it wasn't there. <laughs> and, other advances explain why markets were not in general competitive, why shareholder value maximization did not lead to societal well-being, that economists' assumptions concerning the nature of mankind, either in its ex extreme irrationality or selfishness, did not provide an accurate depiction of human behavior. The protest of 20 years ago provided a foreshadowing of what is now clear. The experiment with neoliberalism in the U.S., we typically refer to this as supply-side economics. That experiment, which had begun 40 years ago, I think can be declared a failure. We need an alternative approach. I suggest an alternative which I call progressive capitalism. Some people call that uh, idea an oxymoron. Um, <laughs> but I try to explain that any complex society like ours needs decentralization, and when I talk about capitalism, it means that there's going to have to be an important role for markets, but not the kind of unfettered markets that have characterized the United States over the last 40 years. And what one needs is a very different kind of market economy. Others refer to similar ideas under names like reinvigorated social democracy or democratic socialism. Uh, what you call it doesn't matter, but two of the important ideas underlying this is, first, it recognizes that a successful society must be based on a rich ecology of institutional arrangements. The dichotomy into markets in the state is really a, a, a false dichotomy. It, it may sound a little bit self-interest, but I think one of the most successful institutions uh, in the United States are our universities. 
And our most successful universities are all either state universities, like University of Washington or University of California, or not-for-profit universities, foundations like Columbia, Harvard, and Stanford. So the only sort of emblematic of the for-profit universities is Trump University. (laughs) And it excels in one area, which is figuring out how to exploit the vulnerable. People who want to get ahead and take advantage of them, as you probably know, Trump had to settle millions of dollars of suits against Trump University for deception and fraud. That's just an illustration of one important set of institutions in our society. Uh, NGOs, labor unions are are other important institutions uh, in our uh, society. Um, Cooperatives uh, are an important set of institutions. Uh, The only part of our financial system that did not engage in the kind of rapacious behavior uh, of uh, predatory lending, market manipulation, insider trading, you name it, they did it. The only part that did not engage in that were our cooperatives, our credit unions. And and they were actually, interestingly, after the crisis, they were the only part of our financial system that expanded lending to small and medium-sized enterprises, actually doing what the financial institution is supposed to do. So it's important to realize that, that a successful economy has to have a rich set of institutions and ought to take an active role in trying to encourage uh, this variety. Finally, I want to emphasize that economic relations shape who we are. Cooperatives encourage cooperative behavior and have, and, and, and this has obviously broad implications for the nature of our society. Nowhere perhaps were the failures of neoliberalism greater than in trade policy. The history of trade agreements in the period after the Seattle protest until the advent of Trump was mixed. The multilateral system was increasingly replaced by regional and bilateral agreements, a complicated spaghetti bowl of entanglements, which typically were more dominated by corporate interests from the advanced countries, paying less attention to issues of the environment and health and labor and, and more unfair to developing countries. Not a surprise, because bargaining power favored large developed countries. These trade agreements gave investors new property rights in the so-called investor agreements or ISDS provisions. They weakened further the bargaining power of workers and made environmental and health regulations all the more difficult. In many ways, matters became worse. So the basic point I wanted to make is it became increasingly clear that trade agreements are about far more than trade, and they certainly weren't free trade agreements, as the U.S. liked to refer to them, or partnership agreements, as Europe liked to refer to them. If they were free trade agreements, they would be about three pages long. TPP went on for 6,000 pages. It wasn't three pages long. They were 
not free trade agreements, they were managed trade agreements. And this is the point. Because they were so long and so detailed, it enabled them to be managed for the corporate interest in the United States and Europe. I was once asked by the president of an emerging country uh, that had been offered a so-called free trade agreement uh, with the United States whether he should sign. I knew he was a doctor, and so I asked him, had he signed the Hippocratic Oath, the critical provision of which is, uh, do no harm. Uh, and of course I knew that he had. Um, and he said, yes, he had signed the Hippocratic Oath. So I said, uh, you can't sign it. <laughs> but I suggested he make a counteroffer, that he offer to sign a true free trade agreement and see what the United States response would be. <laughs> of course, we all knew the answer. The U.S has never been interested in signing a free trade agreement. It would require dealing with a host of special interests, getting rid of agricultural subsidies to the corn farmers, for instance. Um, You're listening to Joseph Stiglitz on a new social contract. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program by calling one 800 1977 that's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. There are many areas in which domestic regulations may affect trade, but citizens should have the right to determine for themselves the regulations under which they live. Values should trump trade and investment. In Europe, for instance, many are concerned about GMO, genetically modified uh, foods. Without saying whether those concerns are right or wrong, they are deeply felt, and they are not motivated by protectionism, yet they have trade consequences. With so much of American production based on GMO, uh, 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 Europe, if it was disclosed that uh, the uh, wheat or the uh, 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 pasta has uh, American grain in it, they won't buy it. Well, American trade negotiators recognized this, uh, and so they have argued against transparency. Their view is that the disclosure would be a trade barrier. But European citizens, I believe, rightly uh, uh, they have, uh, have the right to know what they are eating. So that's an example of how our trade negotiations, negotiators are trying to undermine, you might say, the basic values, things that people care very deeply about and trying to circumscribe what governments can do, reflecting what citizens want. One of the areas not well covered in older trade agreements, such as NAFTA, was high-tech, the digital economy. It developed largely after that agreement was completed. But the new trade agreements, such as that with Japan, embody protections for this industry that are questionable at best and more reasonably should be viewed as unacceptable. 
protection from liability with insufficient safeguards for privacy. 2016 marks, however, a major change in the trade framework. Until then, underlying trade discussions were what might be called a neoliberal view of the world, to which I alluded earlier, which said that markets basically work well, extending markets will increase prosperity from which all countries and all individuals will benefit. Uh, but Trump put a, a, a forward a very different view, more reminiscent of 17th, 17th century mercantilism than 20th century neoliberalism. Uh, Trump has argued that trade was an area for the projection of power. International law was limiting our ability to exercise our power until it are surrendering our sovereignty. Trump was thus criticizing our trade agreements just as the protesters in Seattle did 20 years ago. But I want to emphasize that there's a huge difference between the two critiques. And it's important to understand these differences. I don't know how many of you feel uh, discomfort realizing that you've been uh, protesting trade and Trump has been protesting trade. And if you made that as an analogy, since you both are doing the same thing, you must agree with each other. <laughs> First, to put the whole set of issues in historical perspective, Differences about trade policy have been at the center of economics since the beginning of modern economics some 250 years ago. In the late 18th century, mercantilists argued for trade protection. Adam Smith argued for free trade. Early 19th century discussions of economic policy in the UK were about the repeal of the Corn Laws, uh, about uh, the repeal of these uh, agricultural tariffs uh, which had raised the price of food, increasing incomes of landowners at the expense of the rest of society. Later in the 19th century, industrial tariffs were advocated as a way of encouraging domestic industries and promoting development, both in Europe and the United States, and opposed by agricultural interests who felt threatened by higher prices for the products that they needed to import. By the middle of the 20th century, European and American industrialists had become advocates of trade agreements that got them greater access to foreign markets. Suddenly, in 2016, our business leaders fell silent about these principles and even worse, joined the Trumpian course. We need to ask, has the anti-globalization movement finally found a leader in the form of Trump? And have our business leaders suddenly had a moment of epiphany and seen the light? Well, uh, as you might have thought, uh, the answer to both questions is no. Throughout history, business leaders have, in fact, had a remarkably consistent position. They are in favor of whatever maximizes their profits. If free trade does so at one time, they hold forth on principles of free trade. If protection does it, does it another, that is, to where they, that is where they stand. It is not principle that guides them, but self-interest. And Trump is leading the world into a much more dangerous direction, a direction every bit as bad or even worse than that of the neoliberal movement based on the blind faith in globalization and markets. There are issues of fairness and economic efficiency, and let me deal with each. Trump claims that the trade agreements are unfair to the United States. Trump suggests that our trade negotiators were snookered. But in reality, 
anybody who knows about how these trade agreements are written knows that we wrote those trade agreements. So we did not snooker ourselves. But the problem is that they were written not by us in this room. They were written by and for corporate interests. And so that's the problem. They were written by the United States, but not for the benefit of the people in the United States, but for the benefit of corporate interest in the United States and against the interest of workers in the United States. Trump's analysis of why we need new trade agreements, if an analysis is a word that loses its dignity when applied to his utterances, <laughs> says trade agreements cause trade deficits. Trade deficits cost American jobs, especially good manufacturing jobs, and his new trade agreements, if he could, could ever conclude them and get them passed by all the relevant Congresses, will bring back these jobs. On each account, he is wrong, and badly so. Uh, the multilateral trade deficit is what matters for jobs, not the trade deficit between the U.S. and any particular country, including China. And the, macro, and the multilateral trade deficit, the difference between our exports and our imports, is determined basically by macroeconomics, by the disparity between domestic savings and domestic investment. Uh, and it's not really changed by trade agreements. Trade agreements affect which country and which good we import from particular countries or export to particular countries but not the overall level of the disparity between our exports and our imports. Uh, it can be, the, the, the trade deficit uh, can be affected by misguided tax policy, and in the case of the United States it was. So the consequence of this is that in spite of all the rhetoric that you've heard about strong trade policy, the trade deficit in the United States, the multilateral trade deficit, in just two years between 2016 and 2018, the first two years uh, of uh, Trump, increased, increased by 22%. So that's a remarkable achievement, <laughs> um, especially by somebody who's claiming that his whole thrust is to lower the trade deficit. And actually, the evidence uh, it looks like for uh, now that we're getting data in uh, for 2019, it looks like it's going to go up uh, again this year for the full year. It's on track for going up for uh, projected to be about, compared to 2016, uh, about 30% higher. Every economist rejects Trump's focus on bilateral trade agreements, and most such agreements, as I said, just change the country from which we import goods. Uh, but even here, uh, we have failed. Our bilateral trade agreement, uh, trade, trade and goods deficit with China has increased markedly uh, between 2016 and 2018. And the trade agreements won't bring back jobs to the United States. Even if the manufacturing were to be brought back in any significant quantity, it will be high-tech, largely produced by robots, and not in the places and of the skills of the jobs that were lost. 
Trumpian's incorrect view is that trade is generally zero or possibly negative sum. And again, on this account, Trump is wrong. Trump, trade can be mutually beneficial if it is managed well. And some countries have managed it reasonably well. The U.S., I think, has not. It is by now clear that globalization was oversold. The advocates of free trade exaggerated its growth benefits and underestimated its adverse effects on distribution. In fact, economic theory uh, was fairly clear about uh, two things. First, that trade globalization would increase, as, uh, trade globalization with developing countries and emerging markets would increase inequality. So the impact of trade on inequality should not have come as a surprise, um, but it seemed to. Uh, and the second thing is that um, even though, even if trade increased total income, it didn't mean that everybody would be better off. That uh, depend that that. That assumption was the trickle-down assumption that I mentioned before. Um, all the theory said that everyone could be winners, uh, um, but that wouldn't happen uh, without strong government policies. And the conservatives prevented the actions that needed to be taken to make sure that everybody would be. In fact, you know, in... in uh, 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 when uh, uh, the Democrats proposed the trade agreements, they argued for strong trade adjustment assistance, and the Republicans opposed it. For a long while, I couldn't understand why, because usually in politics, you'd want to get everybody on board, and you would think that by giving more trade adjustment assistance, you would help the people who would be losers, and that would get more political support. Until I thought about it and thought about the reason for some of the investment provisions, which were really giving away one of the strongest uh, comparative advantages the United States has, which is strong property rights. So you're giving it, you're saying even stronger property rights if you invest abroad than if you invest at home. Um, they wanted a weak labor market because with a weak labor market, they got lower wages abroad but they also got lower wages at home. And that meant they got higher profits. So the consistent pattern here is they advocated policies that increased their profits regardless of the impact that they had on American workers. Let me repeat, the problems presented by globalization, for instance, deindustrialization, are only partly the result of unfair international rules or others taking advantage of the U.S. or other developed countries, but are the result of the failure to help the, in the restructuring of the U.S. economy or the economy of other advanced countries, the absence of industrial and active uh, labor market policies, and helping individuals adjust to the economic transformation, to, uh, uh, policies that would have helped them share in the gains from globalization. And it's, it's clear that some countries have done a much better job than others. So what I want to make clear is there is not just a choice between 
going back to the old neoliberal trade regime and doubling down and hoping that it will work better, or the Trumpian nativist protectionism, there is the possibility of a progressive trade agenda. Protectionism and the retreat from multilateralism won't solve the problems and it may make them worse. In particular, as we look around the world, it is a much more dangerous place and we live in a single planet. Just to mention one area, climate change, we need cooperation of everyone. The carbon molecules don't carry uh, passports or visas. Uh, and no matter where they get emitted, they move all over the, the world. So we need global cooperation on climate. We need uh, global cooperation on nuclear proliferation. Uh, the same thing is true about uh, diseases that can go across border, borders. So there, there are a whole set of issues uh, on which we need global cooperation. And you can't separate out cooperation in one area uh, from that in others. And if we are acting in a hostile and non-cooperative way um, in uh, trade, we aren't going to get as effective cooperation in these other areas uh, in which we need cooperation so badly. So we are going to have to figure out how to cooperate with others and that raises the question of how do we form, reform globalization? Uh, how do we, uh, what, what are some of the issues in a progressive trade agenda? Um, successful and, political, uh, and politically acceptable multilateralism will require changing current rules. Um, for instance, monetary and other policies of the large systemic countries are undertaken with little regard for the consequences elsewhere among emerging markets and developing countries. But there are some very difficult issues now that we realize that we aren't quickly converging uh, with other countries. We have to ask questions like, how do we liberalize among countries with fundamentally different values? Values get reflected, as I said before, in our rules and regulations. Different values thus lead to non-tariff, uh, what can be called non-tariff barriers. Uh, what degree of harmonization uh, is desirable? The question is, can we construct a global rules-based trading regime in a world with different political and economic systems in which countries ha can have uh, policy space consistent with their economic model and social values? Gains from trade can be achieved, but countries do not impose excessive costs on others. Let me talk about one particular example that I think needs to get uh, some attention. Uh, we are facing a major challenge. Who is going to write the rules of the digital age? The rules governing privacy, disinformation, liability, hate speech, political advertising, political manipulation, rules which will affect our economic and political lives including the concentration of market power and the magnitude of inequality. And the issue is, to put very simply, will it be our corporations through their influence in secretive trade negotiations or will it be through our democratic political process? And I can't emphasize how important this is because 
these issues are now being put into trade agreements that are being formulated and getting very little attention. These are really the issues that will be affecting our lives over the coming decades. And they are being settled without any discussion in the trade agreements that the digital giants are, the terms of which the digital giants are, are, are winning uh, in how our trade agreements uh, are designed. Well, this example shows the constant vigilance we need to be on as trade negotiations proceed. There may be a temporary victory here or there. Uh, the new trade agreement with Mexico and Canada may have improved uh, uh, a few provisions, um, for instance, investment agreement, um, but expect there to be pushback. And with an administration without guidance of principles and understanding of economics, expect new boundaries to be broken. So finally, let me return to the bigger picture, reconstructing our economic system of which trade is but one part. Think for a minute about the enormous increases in standards of living over the past 250 years, including the doubling of our life expectancy. What made all this possible? And let me make it clear, it wasn't trade. <laughs> uh, although trade may have had some role. It was basically advances in science, in our understanding of the world around us, and advances in social organization, our ability to organize cooperative activities to coordinate on a large scale, economic activities through markets governed by the rule of law, collective action necessary for a modern economy and society, politics which set the rules of the game with separation of powers, checks and balances. These were all, of course, central ideas of the Enlightenment and accept the stage for progress. Uh, and this, this really is the source of the wealth of nations. In all of these, there's a critical role of what I call the truth institutions. All these systems described require systems of assessing the truth. But all of these are now under attack. The media, the judiciary, our universities, our research institutions, our independent bureaucracy. Uh, and these are really the foundations of our post-Enlightenment uh, civilization. And I think the m most disturbing aspect of our political moment is the attack on our basic epistemological system with far-reaching effects on our civilization, our standards of living, and the functioning of our systems of political and social organization. Um, you know, particular policies can be reversed but the destruction of our institutions will take years to rectify. And uh, those are the things I think that we really need to be uh, concerned about. How, it is, uh, how what has been happening in the last few years has been undermining the basic institutions of our society. In this respect, I want to also make one other important uh, distinction. There's a major confusion between what makes a country rich and what makes an individual rich. Individuals can become rich by taking advantage of others, by what economists call rent-seeking or wealth-grabbing, by exploiting others. There are many bases of exploitation, exploiting market power, asymmetries of information, human foibles and vulnerability, political power. And the fact of the matter is that if you look at 
the sources of the wealth of the wealthy, of a very large fraction of those who are at the top, it doesn't come from increasing the wealth of the nation. It comes from taking advantage and exploiting others. So if you think about the individuals who really enriched our society, the people who discovered uh, DNA or uh, the laser, uh, none of those are among the richest people in our society. And so the people who have really expanded our boundaries are not those who have become rich. But if you think about some of the very wealthy people, many of them are just exploiters. Others have made an innovation, but then figured out how to use that to get monopoly power and to multiply that. The basic principle of competitive markets is that competition is supposed to drive profits down to zero to a normal rate of return. And that means you shouldn't have these excessive accumulations of wealth. But we do. And the reason is uh, market power and exploitation. As one of the uh, leading Silicon Valley people uh, put it, competition is for losers. Uh, and uh, that is really sort of the motto of of our uh, business leaders today. I have repeatedly emphasized the importance of the idea of progressivism, the belief that progress is possible and is within our power to construct an economic and social system that advances progress. And we will need national strategies to address the defining problems of our time, climate change, inequality, and political stability. To that, we need a social contract that builds social cohesion and such a social contract must be based on our shared social and political values. I referred to this social contract and some of the key aspects of it earlier in my talk, uh, a new contract between government, markets, and civil society. And there are two ideas that are central to this conception that I think have not gotten sufficient attention. First is the critical role of collective action, that we can do together many things that we can't do alone. We can't address the major issues of our times, climate change, nuclear proliferation, inequality, environmental degradation, individually. Many of these are, in fact, global issues that we will have to address and concert with others. And that's why we have to develop an ethos of cooperation rather than confrontation. Government plays a key role in collective action, but I want to emphasize there is a much richer set of ways in which we cooperate together, working for the common good, spearheaded by unions and civil society, including class action suits and activities of NGOs. Secondly, there's a key role of government and regulation. Regulation has gotten a bad name in the last 40 years, but we can't live together in a complex society without regulations. Stoplights are a simple regulation, telling who can go first, then next. Without this simple regulation, we would be in perpetual gridlock. Regulations are necessary to prevent us from imposing harm on others, as we do when we pollute. One person's freedom is another's unfreedom. So working together for the common good under the new social contract will reinforce our sense of common purpose. Thank you. You were just listening to Joseph Stiglitz 
on a new social contract. He spoke at Town Hall in Seattle in December 2019. Joseph Stiglitz, university professor at Columbia, is the recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economics. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and part of the nonprofit Rise Up. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such progressive voices as Arundhati Roy, Chris Hedges, and Noam Chomsky. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Joseph Stiglitz on a new social contract, just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Special thanks to the Washington State Fair Trade Coalition. Ed Mays recorded the program. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Get your ringside seat to great tunes and spoken word programming each and every week with the CJSW 90.9ers. Check CJSW.com for the schedule and keep your radios tuned to 90.9 FM in Calgary and across Treaty 7 land.